The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The actual entities that control the bulk of the assets we're talking about here very well might be entitled to due process rights. You'd have to do an analysis of the Russian central bank and, and how it fits within the legal standard and how it's been applied. I'm Seraphine Danani legal fellow of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 3rd, 2023. As Russia's unlawful war of aggression continues to inflict untold devastation on Ukraine, policymakers have begun to search for ways to support Ukraine's beleaguered economy and fund its eventual reconstruction. Their attention has turned to the billions of dollars in assets that the United States has frozen as part of its robust sanctions against the Kremlin. But as policymakers attempt to make some of these assets available to Ukraine, it begs the question, under what legal authority can the United States seize these Russian frozen assets? Our very own Scott Anderson, senior editor at Lawfare, along with Shimen Keitner, Alfred and Hannah Fromm Professor of International and Comparative Law at the University of California Hastings College of the Law, wrote a piece for Lawfare titled The Legal Challenge Presented by Seizing Russian Frozen Assets, where they explain the core legal issues that U.S. policymakers need to consider as they weigh whether and how to move forward with seizing any frozen Russian-related assets. I sat down with Scott to discuss all of this, as well as to get Scott's take on how the U.S. might move forward in its efforts to support Ukraine using Russian assets notwithstanding, of course, the many legal constraints it faces. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 3rd. Can the United States seize Russian frozen assets to aid Ukraine? Hey, everyone. Scott Anderson here with a quick update. A few days after Seraphine and I recorded this podcast, Congress enacted a provision related to the seizure of Russian assets and provision of assistance to Ukraine as part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act at the end of the year. I've gone ahead and recorded a quick addendum to this podcast to cover that later development. We've tacked it on at the end of our conversation, so stay tuned. So Scott, Russian frozen assets is a term that's been thrown around haphazardly. But as you point out in your article, there are several types of assets that make up Russia's stockpile. We have you know, the assets that are held by the central banks, assets that private individuals hold, and then there are also those yachts belonging to Russian oligarch that President Biden scooped up. So let's sort of break this down a little. Can you start by delineating these different assets and explaining how much of each type of asset the U.S. has frozen? 
Sure. To start with, we don't really have a super firm idea about how much of each of these categories of assets are frozen. We have kind of broad estimates we've gotten. I think the best numbers that I have that, that can get off the top of my head are from the Repo Task Force. That's kind of the international task force the Biden administration helped to set up earlier this year, coordinating these efforts with other allied governments, primary European governments. I think Japan, South Korea participate as well. So they said uh, essentially they had $330 billion frozen of Russian or Russia-related assets across all those allied countries. But that's probably a very big, broad estimate. What I'll say is I think it's useful thinking about these assets in kind of four categories. And then I'll bring in what they said they know about these four categories, right? The first category it's worth thinking about are actual just state-owned assets. This would be like money in an account owned by the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs or you know, a uh, property owned by the ministry, right? That's not setting aside diplomatic properties, things that have kind of special legal protections in this particular regard. That's kind of one category of assets that has a certain set of legal protections. But we have to distinguish between those assets and assets owned by different types of state-owned enterprises, state agencies, and instrumentalities. A lot of times states set up these pseudo or sometimes substantially independent organizations and entities that have their own assets engage in their own economic activities. And they do that in part for uh, the reason of kind of insulating those assets and treating them as separate entities. And under both US law and, and international law, to some degree, they are treated as such. So they can kind of have separate legal rights and protections from regular state-owned assets. Within those, I think it's worth breaking out a subcategory for central bank assets. Most states have independent central banks, substantially independent. And when those banks are holding funds for their own purposes, those assets tend to get the strongest level of legal protections provided to any state-owned assets. It's particularly true in the United States. It's part of kind of U.S. economic policy and part of the reason a lot of people think the United States is such a desirable place for foreign countries, even foreign rivals uh, or countries with which we have tensions like Russia, like China, why we're such a popular place for them to put their foreign reserves and other funds that they want to hold overseas, both because we're a major market economy and because we have these strong legal protections. So that's kind of three categories right there, right? State-owned assets, state-owned enterprise assets, central bank assets. And the fourth one is kind of everything else. That is private organizations, private individuals, um, very different set of domestic and international law protections than things that have some nexus to a foreign government, as the other three categories have. What we learned from the repo task force over the summer, um, and this was current as of June, although I suspect it's not, other than getting more information, um, you know, the vast majority of blocked and frozen assets probably were blocked and frozen early on in the application of these sanctions. And since then, it's kind of been just kind of creeping around the margins um, because, frankly, a lot of people who might have been sanctioned in later phases probably moved their assets out of jurisdictions where they were likely to be affected by sanctions to the extent they could. So, what they told us is that about $30 billion or so, less than 10% of the total funds were in category four. Those are private individuals and corporations. That uh, means also that includes all the oligarch assets. It also includes the assets of you know Russian officials, Russian parliament members who are also sanctioned. So all of that amounts to about 30 billion estimated. The 300 billion, the vast lion's share of the money is from Russia's central bank. There may some to some extent that might include other government owned entity assets, although I kind of suspect that the amount of assets held overseas and subject to sanctions directly owned by like Russian ministries is actually pretty low. 
Russia has a bunch of these state-owned enter- enterprises, industrial entities, and corporations that kind of run different parts of the Russian industry and infrastructure, um, resource extraction, a lot of oil companies, lots of financial institutions. So I suspect they have a lot of assets that might be getting lumped in with this $300 billion sum as well. But the vast lion's share is really with Russia's central bank. And that's implies a bunch of legal protections that make some of these questions about how could we, if we wanted to access these assets for reasons of pri- providing reparations or or otherwise supporting Ukraine, that makes it more complicated because it implicates some of the strongest legal protections provided to foreign assets out there. So when President Biden and Congress, and I know the EU is also grappling with this, when they talk about seizing Russia's frozen assets. Are they talking about this 300 billion of central bank assets or are they talking more broadly? It varies a lot and it depends on who you're talking to and and what proposal you're specifically talking about. A lot of the conversation, a lot of the discussion in Congress and with the Biden administration uh, and with foreign allies has actually really focused on the oligarch assets. And in part, I think that reflects the legal tools that are available right now and the fact that those have some of the legal protections that are perhaps more easily surmounted. The main tool we've seen used for seizing Russian and Russia-related frozen assets, because again, a lot of these assets are owned by private individuals, but have some nexus to Russia, usually that they're Russian nationals. They are most often being targeted as far so far through civil and criminal forfeiture statutes. These are statutes on the book that allow the government to seize property through a particular judicial process where that property has some nexus to some criminal activity. In the civil forfeiture context, that criminal activity doesn't have to have resulted in a conviction, um, but there has to be some showing of, of relation of the property. In the context of criminal forfeiture, it, it, there, it comes at kind of after a conviction for a, a crime. And so the Biden administration rolled out this plan in April where they basically said, well, we're going to try and work with Congress to beef up our authorities to use civil and criminal forfeiture so that we can more effectively use it to target foreign Russian oligarchs overseas and start attaching their assets, mega yachts, all the things we see kind of in the news. And that's a big focus of a lot of the effort thus far. And it's proven successful. There have been some big notable cases there, although those a lot of those seizures also come with their own complications we, we can talk about. Foreign governments have been, by my understanding, doing similar things. A lot of them have similar forfeiture type authorities. It's it's something that we inherited from British common law. So certainly most common law countries ha- have similar practices and policies kind of built into their legal systems. But it only, only gets you to a fraction of the overall uh, frozen assets because, again, only the smallest share of them seem to, at least according to the Repo Task Force, belong to private individual organizations. And even then, you can only get to those assets where there is some nexus to some activity that's illegal under U.S. criminal law or the criminal law of whatever country is is trying to seize those through the forfeiture provision. And like a lot of these entities, there's there isn't necessarily clear that they've done anything illegal. They're frozen because it's understood to be necessary for U.S. and international security that they try and freeze these people's assets. That doesn't mean they've actually engaged in any criminal activity. You know, a lot of members of Russian parliament, nothing they've done is criminal. We sanctioned the assets of, you know, Foreign Minister Lavrov's daughter, uh, or at least we had at one point. She's ended. She's actually a U.S. national, so that may may have gotten rolled back because um, that's kind of a little more legally complicated. Again, no evidence she did anything criminal. We're doing that because she's tied to this Russian policy, and we're doing it for policy reasons. That lack of a criminal nexus means it's a little hard to know how much of this assets you're actually able to get through this tool. 
although certainly a, a real effort's being made. And there are have been a number of notable cases where, where they've succeeded. So asset forfeitures seems to be one route that has been deployed and marginally successfully, not all assets get roped up in that. But how about the largest share, the central bank assets? What can we do with those? Well, I think it's worth starting thinking about our current kind of legal authorities that we have in the United States. And other countries are in a similar sort of bind here, although this is all, I'm mostly talking about US law here. We can bring in international law in, in a minute. A lot of people who have proposed bringing in these central bank assets um, and, and seizing them in various ways have, in the initial instance, occasionally argued that the US government can seize them using the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. That's a 1977 statute that is the legal authority for usual economic sanctions regimes that block or freeze assets, meaning they, they put them in place, but they don't vest them or seize them, meaning the US government doesn't claim ownership over them. I think this is wrong. Uh, I think people saying the statute can be used for this purpose haven't spent enough time looking at the legislative history, how it's been interpreted. IEPA, the, the, what the statute is referred to, that's the acronym that people call it, IEPA. IEPA is generally understood uh, and has been, this interpretation has been asserted by the Justice Department, by the Supreme Court, by a variety of other entities, to have been very squarely intended to limit the executive branch's ability to seize assets, to vest foreign assets. It's a reaction to an earlier statute, the Trading with the Enemy Act, that did allow, in the context of declared wars, um, the seizure of enemy assets. That was a practice that was very prevalent during World War I and World War II uh, and a bit afterwards, but raised a lot of legal and policy concerns, and the United States kind of, and many other countries tried to get out of the business of. Uh, and so when Congress came in in 1977, updated this legal regime, put a bunch of constraints, because this is the post-Watergate, post-Vietnam era, where there was a lot of concern about executive overreach, um, tried to set a variety of kind of checks on executive power. One of the one they did most expressly, most squarely, is to say, you can block and freeze assets all you want. You can't seize and capture them. After the 9-11 attacks, Congress did go back in and insert an exception that does allow for the vesting or seizure of certain assets, but only where the United States has suffered an armed attack uh, or, again, is in, in a sort of declared war uh, declared by Congress. So, you know, it, those circumstances are ones that doesn't clearly apply to Russia now. I mean, you can make some arguments depending on how you define armed attack, but, you know, armed attack and Usually in the international law context is, is when one country can can respond militarily to another. So y- you wouldn't want to necessarily signal that that's something Russia has done with us because it raises a lot of other big policy and legal questions. And particularly, I think, for the Biden administration, you know, triggering that exception by saying, oh, no, we're at war with Russia really is contrary to what they very explicitly said multiple times, which is that our main policy goal here is to support Ukraine as far as we can, while making clear we do not want to escalate into a direct conflict between the United States and Russia to nuclear powers. So for for more policy reasons than anything else, I'm just not sure that uh, exception gets you anywhere in this particular case of the Russian assets. Beyond that, those civil forfeiture and that IEPA authority, those are the ones that are on the books. And like I said, I don't think either one really gets you to being able to do anything with these assets. A lot of people point to case studies like what the Biden administration did with Afghan central bank assets this past February, what they've done with Iranian assets in regards to judgments of victims of terrorism in the past and say, well, this, you know, in these cases, the executive branch 
was doing exactly what we want to do here. They were making and using foreign central bank assets for their own purposes. But those are all really legally different cases. Actually, in none of those cases did the executive branch actually seize any central bank assets or transfer them to anyone. Um, it's just not something that's routinely done with any foreign assets, certainly state assets, uh, let alone central bank assets. So that's part of the reason there's no real existing authority to be done here because it's just something the United States hasn't really contemplated doing in, in recent history. This might be an example that doesn't totally apply, but I'm trying to think of blueprints here that the United States could use. And I'm thinking of Cuba specifically. So the U.S. unfroze Cuban frozen assets so that they could be attached to civil judgments against the state of Cuba. And I'm wondering where that authority came from. It wasn't AIPA, I don't think. But is the Cuba example something that we could look to to apply to the Russia case? So, without getting too many of the details, in part because I I, I may not have the, I don't have the firmest recall of the Cuba case um, for the details, but my understanding is that that case is very similar to the more recent Iran cases and other cases we've seen where Congress has repeatedly put in place lots of very big exceptions to the usual sovereign immunity protections that protect a lot of these assets from being attached in litigation. And they've carved out very big policy-based exceptions to that, usually particularly in relation to nexus for terrorism. I think in the Cuba case, it was much more about ex- having expropriated U.S. property and done a bunch of other things that they didn't like, not, not squarely terrorism-related, although Cuba has also been linked to, to terrorism, certainly by U.S. policy, and has in the past been, been, been accused of supporting terrorism. But I don't think that was actually the direct impetus in, the, in that case. Regardless, what the United States was doing there in all these cases is that they were essentially lifting the protections that prevented U.S. private plaintiffs who had existing causes of action to then be able to access those assets and attach them to compensate themselves and pay off their judgments, basically to enforce their judgments against Cuba or Iran against these assets that otherwise would have been protected. That's controversial internationally um, for various reasons that aren't super squarely related to the Russian assets case, but is something the United States has done repeatedly. The reason that doesn't get you anywhere here is because there's no domestic law cause of action that the state of Ukraine, for example, could use to bring a lawsuit against Russia and U.S. courts and then try and attach these assets. In those cases, the U.S. government, again, never seized any of these assets. They never invested them. They never claimed ownership over them, which is right now, at least, kind of what they would have to do to claim the Russian assets and then redirect them to some ulterior purpose where there's not an individual claimant in place who might be able to seize or enforce those assets pursuant to a U.S. judgment. Now, that could change. We can get to this a little bit if there is ever an international body that starts issuing judgments in favor of Ukraine and Ukrainians. You know, Maybe the United States could enact a statute that says, oh, actually, these foreign judgments or these foreign international awards actually are enforceable in the United States. And we are going to lift sovereign immunity um, protections to, to make them enforceable as a, whether as a countermeasure under international law or under some other international legal ro- logic. That would be a pretty big development in how those sorts of awards and judgments are usually enforced. But it's uh, that might make it a closer situation to the Iran case, the Cuba case. Absent the existence of those third judgments, the ability of private plaintiffs to to sue, you know, lifting sovereign immunity protections uh, for Russia doesn't get you anywhere on its own because there's there's no vehicle by which Ukraine and Ukrainians can get those assets. One thing that's been debated, and I know know you've done some writing about, uh, is state sponsor of terrorism designation that would penetrate and lift uh, a lot of sovereign immunity protections for Russia and Russian assets. 
in the U.S. legal system, although internationally still controversial, arguably contrary to international law. The problem there, though, is that it only opens the floodgate of litigation for U.S. nationals. So, you know, the concern there is that that would mean lots of U.S. citizens and U.S. nationals who have claims against Russia for a variety of Russia's nefarious activities might be able to start attaching and seizing Russian assets. And a lot of the cause of action they use have very generous treble damages awards, particularly the Anti-Terrorism Act, um, that might let them seize a lot of those money, making it unavailable to Ukrainians later to compensate Ukraine. So it's a it's a tricky situation in the existing legal terrain. You, you can't use those prior cases as models because they're they're just factually different in terms of the legal factors going into them. So let's stay on this point for a second because you also note international legal challenges that the United States will face if it were to attempt to seize Russian frozen assets. And the Biden administration has made clear that he has no intention to designate Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. So in that world where its sovereign immunity is preserved, what kind of constraints are we seeing in terms of international law? So it's worth noting, you know, state sponsor of terrorism, not the only way out of sovereign immunity protections under U.S. domestic law. Sovereign immunity is a product of statute, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act in the United States. But Congress enacted that statute to try and bring the United States into alliance with the expectations of of what it's obligated to provide in terms of sovereign immunity by international law. So there's a lot of things Congress could do, and that probably would be upheld by courts in the United States, but that would put the United States arguably in tension with its international legal obligations, if not in violation of them. And perhaps more importantly, would also cause issues with a lot of the foreign allies with which we're closely cooperating in these sanctions regimes who strongly believe in those sovereign immunity protections and want them. And worth noting, the United States usually strongly believes in sovereign immunity protections as well, at least in part because they protect lots of U.S. assets overseas. So lots of different legal issues might arise there from in the sovereign immunity context. Congress can enact a statute that takes away some of those protections, just as Congress can enact a statute that would allow the executive branch to seize these assets. Um, Just because IEPA doesn't currently doesn't mean Congress couldn't enact a statute to allow it to do so. The problem there becomes, well, doing so, depending on what category of funds we're talking about, raises both constitutional law questions and international law questions and potential barriers that might be hard to surmount, depending on how Congress goes about it. So can you parse out for us, Scott, uh, some of the international legal concerns that the United States is thinking about? Sure. Uh, There's kind of two big categories, I think. Um, One is sovereign immunity we've, we've been talking about already. And that's the idea that states, foreign states, foreign governments generally are entitled to a high degree of legal protection against the kind of domestic legal proceedings in other states. So it's a widely accepted, well-established principle, the exact contours of which are the subject of debate and disagreement at various times. But the general idea is that like one government can't haul another foreign government before its own courts in most cases. There's some widely accepted exceptions for things like when you're diplomats in a car accident or for property disputes when you're engaging in commercial activity, like little exceptions that are kind of practically arise in the course of normal normal duties and normal interactions between personnel from one state and another in their own territory. There are some more controversial exceptions like the terrorism exceptions we've already talked about. The United States has, some countries have, but other countries see them as a violation of international law. Um, some of those are actually being adjudicated before the International Court of Justice now in a case between Iran and the United States. So there's some exceptions that you could play with here potentially that might apply, but generally speaking, various types of state-owned assets are supposed to get substantial legal protections. That definitely applies to 
as sovereign immunity protections, I should say, that definitely applies to foreign state assets, the kind of main category, although the one that I think is probably limited in this case. It can often also apply to agencies and instrumentalities of foreign governments, even where they're fairly independent. And it certainly applies to foreign central banks. Again, in the United States, at least, but a lot of other jurisdictions do this, foreign central banks receive the highest level of sovereign immunity protections of any entity associated with the foreign government. So that's one big barrier there. Um, That's an international law barrier. The other one is one that applies actually to private individuals and citizens, and that's an expropriation restriction. When one government takes a foreign national's property, it's generally understood that they're not supposed to be doing that under international law unless there is some sort of appropriate process and some sort of just compensation. And this principle has really been codified have become much stronger in the recent decades, in part because it's been embedded in a lot of bilateral investment treaties and other sorts of treaty regimes that actually provide legal remedies for people to pursue them against other countries. Um, In our case, the United States and Russia don't have an active bid that would allow Russia to pursue those sorts of claims against us, but they do have different types of investment treaties and similar arrangements with various European countries, Russia does, I should say. So that actually is like a real litigation risk a lot of allied countries would have to think about. And that might have ramifications for the United States as well, kind of secondhand. It's worth noting also that like, it's also kind of pretty well understood that one state can't seize another state's property without causing a bilateral issue. That's also generally understood to be a violation of international law. It's not always thought of in the context of expropriation, which is really a label often applied to as private property. It's sometimes lumped in with sovereign immunity. Other people argue sovereign immunity is really about judicial process. So if it's not a judicial thing, it's not a big issue there. It's kind of like one of these international law areas of academic disagreement where like Everybody kind of agrees one state stealing another state's property is is itself raises international law questions. How you categorize it is a little iffy, but that also enters in here as well. So there's kind of like an expropriation, a version of expropriation restriction that applies to to foreign state property as well, um, to simplify it somewhat. So those are two big categories of international law restrictions that that would make it hard for one state to seize another state's assets. So Scott. What if we characterize seizures of these assets as countermeasures? So you know the United States if they are pressed on it by the international community, can say, look, we're we're only seizing this because Russia has invaded Ukraine and we're taking this measure to bring Russia back into compliance. Why doesn't countermeasure offer a solution for us here? So it's a really good question. And we've seen a lot of creative proposals that use countermeasures to try and kind of square the circle a little bit here. Uh, Philip Zelikow, um, a former senior official and, and very insightful international law and politics scholar at the University of Virginia wrote about one proposal about this for lawfare a couple months ago. But it's not as easy a fit as as one might hope for the simple reason that countermeasures are widely understood to be available where you are trying to get a foreign state back into compliance with its own international legal obligation. They say basically, okay, we can suspend our international legal obligations towards this state that's in violation of international law in a way that's proportional to its violation and that's intended to encourage them to come back into compliance. Russia is clearly in violation of international law for what it's doing in Ukraine. So that part is easy to check. It's not hard to imagine a lot of things being proportional given the scale of its clear aggression, uh, unlawful aggression in Ukraine. So those two factors are easily met. But the other big criterion, other than some like procedural things and other little details that you can probably figure out in this context in regards to countermeasures, the biggest barrier is that countermeasures are intended to be temporary. The whole idea is that you impose this 
you know, restriction or punishment on the other state. And then once it comes back into compliance, in this case, maybe once it ceases, uh, you know, invading Ukraine or ceases and provides reparations, you bounce back and you restore the status quo ante. All of a sudden, the grounds on which you were ignoring your international legal obligations to that state that was in violation cease. And so you have to jump back into compliance or else you yourself are just violating international law. That's really hard to do when you're talking about one state claiming ownership, vesting or seizing another state's property, because vesting is permanent. It's a permanent deprivation of that property. And so it's not a super easy thing to, to square, to figure out how exactly that fits in in this environment. Maybe if you had third-party claimants that could make a lawsuit against for property, maybe then you could say, well, look, we're just lifting this legal protection of sovereign immunity. That's the countermeasure. We're not doing anything permanent. We're just allowing these claims to go forward, and then we'll put it back on once you come back into compliance. That's actually kind of how people have tried to, at various times, justify under international law the exceptions for sovereign immunity for terrorism and for other kind of nefarious conduct. They say basically it was like a countermeasure, and once these are stop sponsoring terrorism, then we'll you know restore their sovereign immunity. So maybe you could fit something in there with that sort of logic, but in terms of actually seizing assets, government claiming them, that's a permanent change, and and it's really hard to square with the countermeasures framework. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn 
to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Thanks for that. That's that's fascinating. And I think there are quite a few policy questions I have in that same line of thinking. But before I get there, I do want to get give you some space to talk about 
the constitutional authority. You argue that seizures of Russian frozen assets would violate both the due process clause and also the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. And I, before we even get there, I have to be very honest with you and maybe plead a little bit of ignorance here. I guess I always thought that these two amendments apply to U.S. persons and not foreign states. So I, I'd i be grateful if you could maybe just break that down a little bit uh, before delving into both the due process and takings clause concern. Sure, absolutely. Um, so there's a really long ongoing legal debate about the extent to which foreign states uh, and foreign entities, other foreign entities as well, but but for the, our purposes here, foreign states benefit from domestic law, constitutional law protections, mostly in the, most of the case laws in the due process context, but applies arguably more broadly as well. The Supreme Court has never ruled on the issue. There's dicta it issued um, basically that draws a parallel between foreign states and the states of the union, and meaning the 50 states. And the 50 states don't are not considered under other Supreme Court precedent to have due process rights. And so the Supreme Court said, well, it's kind of weird to treat foreign states as if they have due process rights. But it was dicta. They never actually held they don't have it. The DC Circuit and the Second Circuit have held that foreign states do not get due process rights under the Constitution. And so that would mean that you wouldn't raise any due process concerns if you were applying a particular government action like a seizure to foreign state assets. Again, things owned directly by a state. But those same two circuit courts draw a distinction between foreign states and foreign state-owned entities, foreign agencies and instrumentalities. They know that where foreign agencies and instrumentalities like central banks are sufficiently kind of independent, there is actually a distinction between them and the state itself. They're not just a shell. The state completely controls one-to-one. In those cases, they actually are treated more like private corporations. And they do, as long as they have some nexus to the United States, have constitutional and due process rights. And so the actual entities that control the bulk of the assets we're talking about here very well might be entitled to due process rights. You'd have to do an analysis of the Russian central bank and, and how it fits within the legal standard and how it's been applied. But the presumption is that they do, that they are fairly independent, unless that presumption is rebutted by evidence that they are kind of just a uh, completely being dominated by the Russian government. Um, I haven't done that factual analysis. I don't know where it is. I suspect the Russian government has frankly structured things in a way that they are w- well aware of that law and to get around it. Russia's operated in the United States for a long time. They hire very expensive lawyers, and I suspect they've structured their operations to maximize their availability of legal protections. But who knows? I, I could be wrong about that. So that's kind of due process context. And then for private individuals and oligarchs, uh, like oligarchs, I should say, you know, they're not foreign nationals aren't automatically entitled by constitutional rights. In fact, they're usually considered not to have them. But when a foreign national has contacts with the United States, and that often includes like owning property there or other sort of nexus, they are benefit from constitutional rights. So like a classic case is designations under terrorism groups, as long as a designated terrorist group has a office in the United States or has a bank account in the United States, they're usually able to pursue due process challenges of of, uh, their designation. And that's been upheld in the sanctions context and the foreign terrorist organization designation context by the DC circuit among other courts. So again, a lot of the entities here actually do probably, who have these assets that are issued probably could make due process challenges. I don't think due process itself is fatal to efforts to seize um, assets. It just means you're going to have a process to have a process in place where you can confidently say, 
oh no, like seizing the we're actually seizing the assets of people we're legally allowed to seize these assets of, and there's you know a policy need that matches the deprivation in this case, and we have a process that that gives them an opportunity to challenge these actions, things like that. This was done in the context of the Trading with the Enemy Act, where we did seize enemy assets during World War One, World War Two. And it was like a pretty serious process. There was a little legal process involved, much more than what's applied to just applying sanctions. While applying sanctions has been upheld as a consistent with due process in most cases, uh, although there have been a few places where that's been pushed, it's always on the assumption and the understanding that's a temporary freeze, that's a temporary blocking. If you were to seize those assets, all of a sudden the scale of the deprivation becomes much more significant. And I suspect courts would be much more resistant to the idea that the exact same standard applies, that you can just seize the assets of whatever entity you've already frozen. I suspect they're going to demand, say that due process demands a bit more process and scrutiny than that, as it did in the Trading with the Enemy Act context. So that just means that doesn't, that's not prohibitive. It just means you're going to have to set up a legal process to do this. And it's going to take some time and some investment of government effort and energy to make this happen. The takings clause claim, I think, is actually more complicated. The Justice Department issued a set of opinions from the Office of Legal Counsel in the 1970s that said basically, well, in the context of of Iran after the Iran embassy crisis, they said, well, we think actually U.S. government can seize foreign state assets because the takings clause, without triggering takings clause obligations, and the taking clause, I should note, normally obligates the government to compensate when they seize property. And they noted in those opinions, well, the takings clause says private property. These aren't private property. They're government property, public property, and therefore it's not going to apply to them. I'm don't, not sure the extent to which that distinction is upheld uh, for foreign state property um, because the Supreme Court subsequent to those OLC opinions has actually come out and said, well, no, actually local of the 50 states, state property and municipal property, other things that you wouldn't think of normally as just private property actually do trigger takings clause obligations if they were to be taken. And particularly if, you, if you're buying that logic from the due process context that that draws a parallel between states of the union and foreign states, that seems to cut the other way here in the taking clause context. Regardless, private entities, private corporate entities, and then sufficiently autonomous foreign agencies and instrumentalities often can make takings claims. Um, again, where they have that sort of nexus, you can actually even have foreign entities regarding foreign policy in theory making takings claims, although that has been kind of restrained in recent decades by the courts. So again, you could really actually have big takings clause issues here uh, in regards to seizing assets, um, depending on the category of asset at issue and how these kind of legal ambiguities shake out. And of course, that means the United States has to pay it back one-to-one. So you're not actually getting much if you're just vesting it in the United States. At that point, you might as well just give assistance to Ukraine and avoid this legal kind of schema where you're just transferring money, just have to pay it right back um, the value um, in compensation. Again, I don't know it's prohibitive, but it's a legal risk that people need to be aware of. Also worth noting in this case, and this is something that uh, DOJ addressed very squarely and was concerned about in the, the Iran context in the 1970s, they noted that a lot of these assets in the Iran case, and I suspect this is true of Russia as well, are actually held in foreign banks of which the United States has a relationship or, or has accounts in the United States. Those foreign banks might be obligated by a legal a law the United States adopts, like IEPA, saying, no, you have to transfer all these assets back to the United States. And they may feel compelled to oblige in doing so. But in doing so, they may make themselves vulnerable to legal claims in foreign jurisdictions that then impose damages on those banks. And those banks or financial institutions might then have a takings claim against the United States because of the damages they incur on the argument that we were obligated to comply 
because by United States government, because of our relationship with you, you, we transferred these assets to you, but now we're suffering all these damages as a result of that compliance. That is a takings. And the Justice Department was very worried about that in the Iran context. Um, and I think those concerns would apply here as well if you were to to target, again, those foreign assets that are held in foreign banks the United States might be able to convince or, or coerce into transferring to the United States. So long story short, that might really constrain the universe of assets you can try and seize in a legal, safe manner without incurring that additional litigation risk. Right. I'm smiling here because it seems like we are more limited than than otherwise in seizing these assets and really trying to do what President Biden wants, which is taking these assets and making sure that we can give them to the Ukrainians for their reconstruction efforts. But that also makes me think there are a series of legislations that have come out this year on this issue. And I know Congress has also become quite fatigued with the United States providing the amount of aid that it's providing Ukraine. And I'm wondering if you could maybe give us some sense of what sorts of legislation is out there. What what are those legislations trying to address? And you know, has has Congress in its own way tried to you know sneak in language or maybe explicitly talk about the United States being able to seize these assets and give the executive that power to do so? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm happy to talk about that. Um, and there have seen some action in this domain that's that's worth flagging, although not quite as much as you might might think. It's worth starting with the Biden administration first, I think. Um, and we've already touched on this a little bit. So the Biden administration has been very lean forward when it comes to oligarch and, and private citizen assets. I'm not aware of actually President Biden or the administration saying outright that we do actively want to take Russian central bank assets. I think the Secretary of State said something that was read that way at some point early in the conflict. But Secretary of Treasury at least has come out and said, we don't see that as a legal option right now under existing authorities, and we're still exploring it. Um, I think that's still the Biden administration's position on on things like central bank assets. In regards to oligarch foreign individual assets, we've seen them roll out this comprehensive proposal to hold Russian oligarchs and elites accountable in April 2022, where it's, again, built off of civil and criminal forfeiture authority. So basically, they said, well, we want to install some new criminal offenses that will um, make apply more easily to foreign oligarchs, particularly where they try and evade sanctions that might allow us to to for- seize assets through forfeiture more easily, really tries to streamline forfeiture process and builds in kind of a process for taking forfeited assets and just immediately sending it to Ukraine as foreign assistance. And then also would build out through ways that don't have anything to do with legislation, but was kind of part of their policy proposal, the international task force element, which we've seen implemented through the repo task force. It's worth noting there was a provision um, that part of this proposal did make its way into, um, I believe it was the House NDAA um, this year. It was just a, a, a chunk kind of of the overall proposal, but kind of the most important part. That was a provision that would have established a foreign assistance mechanism to take forfeited assets and immediately kind of channel them to Ukraine. That was pulled out primarily for kind of procedural foul reasons. Uh, Republicans in the House and the Senate objected that it wasn't adequately reviewed by the Judiciary Committees and that it should have been. So we might see that provision actually find its way into other legislation in the near future. Republicans who objected to it in the NDA said, we, we like the substance. We don't oppose to that. It just needs to get reviewed properly by these other committees. So who, who knows exactly, but it may find its way into maybe the omnibus appropriations that's still coming down the pike or, or something else, um, even though it didn't make its way into there. But that's really really the only legislative action that that's kind of imminent. 
there is a, another bill that was passed by the House back in April, um, sponsored by uh, Representative Malinowski, that originally would have given, and if not actually directed, um, the United States to seize assets, like very broad domestic law authority to do that, but was kind of watered down in revisions and in discussions with the Biden administration that I think was worried about these constitutional and international law concerns I flagged and said, whoa, 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 hold on. Let's let's find something to take a little babyer steps as we figure out how to tackle this kind of unprecedented step. And so, what it really does is it it would establish an internal committee to explore options how to how to seize these. And actually, itself really focuses on oligarch assets as well. That was adopted by the House, never got taken up by the Senate, and in some ways is a little bit overcome by events at this point because the Biden administration's proposal do, kind of does what it was asking for, arguably. Um, so I don't think we're going to see more on that. And then the the biggest proposal we've seen, or the most aggressive, is, is what's called the Russian Elites Proxies and Oligarchs Act, the Repo Act, um, that was introduced in the Senate by Senators Rich, uh, who's the ranking minority member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Whitehouse, and a couple other bipartisan sponsors, as an NDA amendment that basically would have said, Mr. President, we're giving you the authority to seize these assets. It doesn't really address the constitutional or the international law concerns. I'm guessing in part because they they're they're giving the authority. They're not compelling the executive branch to use it. The executive branch will figure out how to use it in a way that squares the circles, presumably. But this law also didn't pass, so it didn't make it into the Senate version of the NDA. It wasn't the House version, and so who knows what, if it's going to come back in some other form or some other vehicle. But it it doesn't look like it's got the critical votes in the Senate to to go anywhere. Uh, but that might change as time goes on. That was very helpful, Scott. Thank you. And could you take this time also, maybe like. You know, very quickly, help us understand what our partners are doing to address this issue. Sure. We've seen some kind of interesting proposals uh, and, and some actual action by allies involved in this broader sanctions effort in this in this regard. Lots of countries are engaging in the repo task force, it's worth noting, uh, and, and are using their own civil forfeiture and criminal forfeiture-like uh, authorities against oligarch assets. That's fairly widespread. Uh, I don't think all countries are doing it, but a number are. And a number of those that don't have those authorities or aren't using them themselves are helping other countries do it. So that's pretty widely established and well accepted. Canada actually has, has, has the most maybe lean forward proposal. Its parliament adopted a measure that would allow its central government to seize the any sanctioned assets under bilateral sanctions regimes, which includes the ones being applied against Russia. Where there's a gross violation of international law, and as comp and the money's going to be used as compensation for that gross violation, it's an interesting measure. It doesn't clearly get around, or I'm not sure how exactly they're expecting to address the international law concerns we have. And and Canada has similar constitutional law concerns, although of different you know specifics in the United States. But they they also have a takings clause and due process clause like requirements in their legal system. So I don't know how they're squaring the circle on those. Notably, the authority hasn't been used yet, so I'm not sure the Canadian government knows the answer either. And it's not, to me, clear that there's a ton of Russian assets that would be sanctioned, uh, or that would be attached here, sanctioned by Canada, actually in Canada, that could be seized by them. So this may have been more symbolic or not, or maybe preparing for kind of later action by the international system. But who knows? But it's it's a notable law and worth leaning forward on. We also saw seen the EU just in the last week or two roll out a proposal where they have kind of rolled out this idea that they would take central bank assets and essentially not seize the assets, but seize interest made on the assets, basically invest them um, and then take whatever profits from them that are that are garnered and redirect that towards Ukraine. 
it's not exactly clear what the legal authority is here. It's kind of trying to split the baby in terms of not you know, not running afoul of international legal concerns by seizing assets, but still providing something to Ukraine. It, it may be playing with some delta between international law expectations of interest paid on frozen assets and, you know, what they think they can get in the market for them. There's also an idea that under international humanitarian law, um, property can be seized and held in kind of like a use of fructic, uh, an entity where it can be used by the kind of occupying or, or seizing or freezing authority, I should say, in a way that's rendered necessary by military necessity and those benefits redirected elsewhere. So that might be playing with that. I haven't seen a good explanation. It's not clear the proposal is going anywhere, but it's something they've rolled out with recently. And then it's worth noting uh, what I think is actually the most notable action that's happened just in the last few weeks, which is the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution that endorsed the creation of, a, of an international body, uh, kind of register, to take collect evidence and been processing and determining what actual specific reparations are owed to Ukraine and Ukrainians by Russia, basically building a case and issuing kind of judgments, essentially saying, here here's what's owed. I think it's notable because, um, first, it was actually done under the United for Peace formula. This is a, a formula that's been around in the UN since the 1950s, although kind of controversial in the United States, has helped start it and then has at times had kind of difficult relationships with it. But its basic idea is the UN General Assembly asserts the authority that where the Security Council is paralyzed because of vetoes by the P5 members, um, which is the case with Russia here, Russia's vetoed any effort the Security Council has tried to take in regard to Ukraine. The General Assembly claims the authority to act in their stead to preserve international security. And so arguably, if you buy that authority on the part of the General Assembly, then maybe you and other countries might read the General Assembly resolution as authorizing, providing international legal authority to provide compensation to the Russians. And maybe that provides a legal basis on which you can, you know, enforce these judgments coming from the register and perhaps even kind of penetrate sovereign immunity or other legal protections to make that happen, depending on how strong you read the mandate from the General Assembly. I think we'll have to wait and see what member states end up doing with that resolution. I think they're still figuring it out. Um, But it's very notable I think very notable uh, step the international community has taken that that could help provide a, a big part of a solution in cracking this egg about how to go about converting these assets to, to Ukraine's benefit. And and to that point, I, I think it's a really great step forward. And I'm wondering, are you thinking about other routes that the United States or with its partners can take to either get around some of these legal hurdles or... I mean, maybe form a coalition with its partners and just thwart international law altogether. Because if we all agree that we have this policy of seizing these assets and you know giving them to the Ukrainians or putting them in an escrow account, and everyone collectively breaches international law, that perhaps the consequences aren't that grave. I mean, what are the steps forward? Which ones do you find the most viable? Sure. I mean, there's there's a bunch of different routes states could choose to move forward with individually or or collectively, right? The f- kind of first thing they could do, uh, and I think this is kind of the most internationally, legally, and probably domestically legally sound approach, a- at least under conventional like views of international law, is that the United States and other countries freezing these assets could just refuse to return the assets even after Russia stops invading Ukraine until Russia agrees to pay reparations to Ukraine. On the logic, I don't think anyone disputes that Russia clearly owes Ukraine reparations under international law, even if there's no ICJ judgment or any any judgment saying that. 
until Russia does that as a countermeasure, these countries are going to hold the and continue to freeze these assets. I think that's a very sound approach legally. Um, the only problem you have with it is that as a policy measure, it's it's going to take a long time for Russia to ultimately cave and, and maybe d- agree to pay reparations if that ever even happens. So it's not going to provide immediate assistance to Ukraine or the immediate reparations that, that Ukraine, I think, is reasonably understood to need to, to recover from this conflict. Other than that, you know, you could could do what the Biden administration is already doing, other countries are already doing, continuing to build out for forfeiture authorities. That will get you, you know, some chunk of money, but probably not the lion's share of the money that's frozen out there. There, there is this idea that the United States has deployed in the past that, you know, if there were a war between the United States and Russia or other countries in Russia, the United States could seize these assets. And U.S. courts have upheld that if you meet the right you know, process requirements. The United States argued that that was consistent with their national law for a long time, although it was very controversial. It's worth noting, like, again, that was a practice that had fallen out of favor and and that the United States and other countries have moved away from. But it you know, legally, they, they could go back to it. The big barrier there is that risk of escalation with Russia. You know, do you want to say you're at a, in war with Russia between the United States and Russia? And certainly the Biden administration has seemed to suggest it doesn't want to do that. Congress could just give the authority, as we saw with the Rich White House bill, to the executive branch. And maybe the executive branch just does it and says, well, we're just going to figure out these legal risks are outweighed by the need to do this. Again, you they might end up on the hook for due process concerns or for taking clause concerns that, that, that could cause real issues with that. Certainly, you know, Russia, again, is used to litigating the United States. It, it ha- has done so regularly in the past, and I suspect would, would do so again here, potentially. Um, so you can expect this to go to litigation. So, But nonetheless, they may try and tackle that. I think the issue there, though, is that international law-wise, that could have real co- implications because a lot of countries might have issues with it, might have concerns, might not be on the same page. And a, a lot of these frozen assets probably are in other jurisdictions, not in the United States. So a coordinated approach is necessary to get access to the biggest swath of them. And of course, it got ne- negative implications for the United States too. The United States has been repeatedly accused of violating international law by other countries. And it kind of sets up a model saying, well, where that happens, countries can feel free to ignore sovereign immunity, ignore these other legal protections and start seizing assets and handing them back to the aggrieved party. Some people might be comfortable with that. I suspect the executive branch of the United States isn't because you know, just 20 years ago, we were accused of committing aggression ourselves against Iraq. And while we don't agree with those assessments in the US, in the US government, at least, like plenty of other states did. And so you may be hesitant to set a precedent for that sort of action. That's why I think the General Assembly action is, is really most notable. I think once you get to international judgments that really give uh, awards reparations of various types to Ukraine, then you're in an environment where countries can begin to set up mechanisms to enforce those judgments and might even get into a place where they're comfortable limiting sovereign immunity or suspending it um, as a countermeasure uh, or because they feel compelled to by the edict of the General Assembly through this resolution or through some other international legal logic where they allow those judgments to be enforced against these assets. You know, there are lots of ways you could get these judgments other than this entity the General Assembly is authorized. You, the ICJ, the ICC, European Court of Human Rights, all hearing cases relating to Russia and Ukraine. There's talk about a special tribunal for aggression that could come up, although all of those are only taking slices of the claims that Ukraine has against Russia. Not fully clear whether, um, you know, what types of reparations are going to come and reparations awards will come out of that. ICJ, ICC, like big reparations aren't something they do that often. So, so a new tribunal of sorts might be warranted. But regardless, once you get those sorts of judgments, maybe the United States says, well, we're going to allow these judgments to be enforced in U.S. courts, just like we do for our different types of foreign court judgments. 
And those aren't considered takings. They don't raise due process questions if they meet certain legal standards that seem very meetable here. The really barrier, the real barrier there remains sovereign immunity. And again, you might be able to get around sovereign immunity countermeasures wise uh, or some other exception that is going to be easier for the international community to swallow. It's worth noting that itself would be like a pretty dramatic evolution in how international law and international community thinks about international judgments and enforcing them. Uh, but maybe that's a, a progressive move that the international community is ready to take at this moment because of the severity of what Russia has done in Ukraine. Scott, in reading your piece, I I noticed a quote here that I thought was really important, and I want to bring this out. You say, the central role that the United States plays in the global economy, including as a major depository for foreign central banks, is built in substantial part on the strong legal protections it has in place for foreign assets and the degree to which it respects relevant international law. If the United States further changes the rules of the game, it will need to anticipate and live with the consequences. And in some of these solutions that you proposed, there are questions of potentially changing the rules. I suggested the thwarting of international law altogether. You didn't bite that one. But we did talk about, you know, maybe qualifying this as war or under IEPA. I'm just wondering if you can round this out here and explain what those consequences look like. If we change the rules of the game, what would the consequences be for the United States? Well, I think the the right question is how much do we have to upset the rules of the game? The status quo, you know, ante the the situation now in regards to the legal regime around these sorts of assets has really served the United States really well. It has made the United States, you know, really the hub of the global economy in a lot of ways, uh, and certainly global financial transactions. It's made us a major depository for all sorts of foreign state um, central bank assets and lots of other business activities. And because of that central role we play in the global economy, it also allows us to leverage that role in ways that can advance our foreign policy interests and national interests, right? As we do with economic sanctions. If we didn't play that central role in the global economy, economic sanctions we impose bilaterally would be much less consequential and have much less bearing on how other states and other international actors choose to act. So there's always this question about how far can you push that before you start discouraging states um, from continuing to engage in the US economy in the same way and move away from it. You know, often those concerns can be a little uh, overstated. You know, sanctions, it's it's kind of like something we've kept ratcheting up, kept ratcheting up, and there's no sign of really states substantially beginning to disengage with us, except for maybe, you know, Iran and a couple other states with which we have major problems, right? Who have disengaged with us a long time ago. Although it's worth noting Russia and China have tried to find various ways to kind of disengage and probably will continue to do so in the near future. So the real question then becomes, if you want to do something really dramatic, and it's worth noting, seizing hundreds of billions of dollars of Russia's central bank assets would be dramatic. And if if done strictly unilaterally in a way that's not easy to distinguish from you know other states the United States might take issue with in the future, I think there's a very real concern that that could scare off a lot of foreign governments who maybe get along fine with the United States now enough to do business, but might not in the future, like Saudi Arabia, for example, or you know, lots of Central American countries or East Asian countries that aren't participating in the sanctions against Russia because they know they have to balance their relationship with those two countries. And for that reason, you know, maybe a little wary of like, well, at some point is the United States going to use our deposits in the United States against us to force us to do something we don't want to do. That's why I think really, you know, the key to finding a way forward on this is to find something that's multilaterally acceptable. 
to a big swath of the international community. You're never going to get everyone on board, but if you can get probably the United States, United States key allies on board, and then you know hopefully a lot, a big swath of those numerous countries that haven't taken a firm stance in regards to imposing sanctions on Russia, but have condemned Russia's actions in the UN and other places. And again, I think that General Assembly vote we saw in November is indicative that you can get those people on board with the idea that we do have to get reparations for Ukraine from Russia. If you can get them on board with some sort of proposal, and then you implement it in a way that very clearly underscores that Russia is unique, not just because of the you know somewhat subjective judgment of the states applying it that what Russia did is a much bigger and more important violation of international law than what other states do, because that's a, a judgment that's harder to kind of draw a clean line around. It's much more subjective. But set it up procedurally and say, no, like Russia is now the subject of this whole tribunal and they're issuing judgments and we've confirmed it's consistent with international law. We've given them process and a chance to contest it and they haven't done that successfully. And here are these awards. Then I think that becomes something that's a lot more digestible to a lot of states in the international community. They're going to look at that and they're going to say, well, this is a situation we're extremely unlikely to find ourselves in. We're not establishing any other problematic precedent here. And we're not worried about the United States using this as a precedent to do something further against us in the future. Instead, the United States seems very clear, very intent on only in where we have checked all these other boxes doing this sort of extraordinary thing. So it, it almost helps kind of become the exception that reinforces the rule of how strong the legal protections of the United States really are. That's why I think that's the most plausible route forward. It's not immediately satisfying because it doesn't drop hundreds of millions of dollars into Ukrainian bank accounts tomorrow, which is what a lot of policy people do want to see. But again, I think doing that just raises a lot of legal risks. And maybe that's something you can do more effectively through foreign assistance, even foreign assistance that maybe gets paid back at the end of this process, or maybe a loan uh, leveraged against the funds that will eventually come in through this legal process. But when you're doing something as dramatic as really you know, seizing such a huge swath of what is normally the most heavily protected assets a foreign state can have, um, I think it's worth finding a way to do that as carefully as possible. And that means engaging with the international community, going through this process, and really doing it in a way that's as close to international law and the substance and principle underlying international law uh, as we can do, and then taking those products and channeling that back into these enforcement mechanisms that we have domestically. And to me, that, that strikes me as the most realistic and reasonable way forward. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, as part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act that Congress enacted on December 22nd, Congress voted, or I should say the Senate initially voted to adopt an amendment related to Russian assets and their potential seizure and transfer to Ukraine as compensation for Russia's crimes against Ukraine. Um, there's some a lot of coverage and a lot of confusing coverage about what exactly this provision did. Um, that. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Senate, again, adopted as an amendment to the Omnibus Appropriations Act, uh, and the House then approved the version with that amendment. Um, so it's on its track uh, as, at this point, entering into law. The amendment essentially sets up a mechanism or authority by which assets that are secured by the federal government through conventional civil and criminal forfeiture 
statutes, meaning through those existing procedures, and that are also tied to sanctioned entities or sanctions programs relating to Russia. So those kind of both of those conditions are put into a special fund that the federal government, the executive branch can use to transfer directly to Ukraine as foreign assistance. So this isn't a broad seizure, new authority to seize different assets that weren't previously subject to seizure. Instead, this is a special foreign assistance mechanism that the administration actually asked for as part of its proposals earlier this year that essentially lets them fast track funds that are forfeited under existing authorities related to Russia and Ukraine to the Ukrainian government as a form of foreign assistance. Um, it authorizes the, the Attorney General and Secretary of State to do that in, through 2025. So setting up a potential vehicle for foreign assistance that, that lasts that long. As I believe I mentioned in the episode, this provision had actually originally been scheduled for inclusion in the NDAA, but had met with some objections among uh, members of the House and Senate because it had not in their view, been properly vetted by the Judiciary Committees. Um, it seems that those concerns have been addressed at this point, uh, which may uh, account for the reason why it was able to be included in this bill through this late amendment procedure with relatively little controversy. Scott Anderson, thank you very much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our material supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. This podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>